This is Off Script with Trish Glose. Intimate interviews with interesting people. In front of my microphone today is Herb Quaddy. Hello, Mr. Quaddy. Hi, Trish. How are you Herb, doing? Herb Quaddy of Quaddy North and uh, Barrel 42 Custom Winecraft. And Applegate Vineyard Management. Oh, okay. Add just one more on there. That's quite a resume. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how I got myself into all this. I got in way deep, <laughs> way, way deep. That's good. That's all right. We're going to talk a lot about wine. Um, a lot actually, because it is your life and it has been your life for all of your life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that accurate to say? It, there is true. I, I did this, uh, strange little, uh, short dabbling, um, at UC Santa Cruz where I studied politics. Mm -hmm. I actually got a degree in that. Okay. Um, and, but uh, by and large, I've been in the wine industry for uh, a long time, and you know, for the most, for the greater part of my life, and one way or the other. Okay. Yeah. So, first of all, where are you from originally? I'm originally from Madera, California. Mm -hmm. I was born in Lodi, but um, I grew up in Madera, which is a, uh, a small town, a farming town in just north of Fresno in okay. the Central Valley. I know Lodi is very wine centric. Was this uh, the the town you grew up in also kind of whiny? I think uh, Lodi became um, more associated with smaller wineries, um, you know, later on. And Madeira, on the other hand, has always been in the larger commodity side of the business. Uh, a huge amount of wine grapes are grown there, but very few small wineries mm -hmm. um, exist there. And then most of those are sold. Uh, most of the small wineries are sold direct. Uh, my family's winery is one of the few that is family-owned and sells outside of the area. Okay. You were born in 1975. Yes. Sticks out for me. That's when my brother was born. Okay. 1975. So did you have any siblings? I have a, a sister, Allie. She's a few years younger than me. How much younger? She was born in 79. So she's four I years I was younger. born in 79. Okay. okay I'm, get, I'm digging this parallel yeah. universe right here. Did you guys get along? Oh, yeah. For sure. Okay. We did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, my brother uh, would lock me out of the house. <laughs> in the summertime on a very frequent basis. Sorry, Robbie, but it's true. I'm calling you out right now. Um, when you were born, your dad was not in the wine business at the time. Actually, he was. Oh, he was? At yeah. The time. He, um, he was, uh, his original degree was as uh, in chemical engineering. And mm -hmm. then he was a chemist and he worked in a fireworks factory that made uh, munitions during the Vietnam War. Wow. And so he had a hard time with that. My mom, um, she actually was an Asian studies major who worked as a buyer for May Company. They both had a hard time with their jobs, and they checked out in the 70s. My dad went back to school. He got a degree in enology, and they started um, – the very first vintage he made was in 75. Okay. Under his own label. But he was a winemaker for a big winery, and the wines he made were things like uh, Rascal Berry and Watermelon. Sounds and, delicious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He's <laughs> Very well known for those things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually very famous for those, those dessert <laughs> wines, right? The, so later, so the first one was a port in 75. Mm -hmm. uh, they made from Zinfandel. And then later, he started making uh, a dessert wine from a variety called Orange Muscat. Mm. And he was known um, as the first uh, California winemaker to make a premium dessert wine. Awesome. Go dad. What was yeah. your dad's name? Andrew. Yeah. Andrew. And the, my parents are still... They uh, are still highly involved. You know, they're trying to retire, but they're highly involved in the business. Yeah. Can't get out of it yeah, somehow. Yeah, that's right. So let's go back a little bit. He was he was essentially making explosives or ammunition yeah. that he, were going to the Vietnam he War. He was a specialist in underwater, in underwater flares. 
So he would go develop these things and he'd test them off the coast of Southern California. But um, between the accidents that were at the plant and uh, the stress of being involved in that side of the war, he um, found a release in drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, you know, in terms of straight alcoholism, but more in uh, the enjoyment of, of wine. Mm-hmm. And so he got into wine and history and he became very interested in it and he decided he would like to be a winemaker. Was there a little bit of an internal conflict with him too because of his job and the state of where we were at this point? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of people of his generation felt that. And that's, you know, and many of the California wine pioneers were um, in the same boat one mm-hmm. way or the other. They checked out and they decided they wanted a better life. Mm-hmm. And I think my parents wanted uh, a different type of life. Um, and my dad wanted a different type of professional goal, something that would still uh, stimulate chemistry, but what he could feel good about at the end of the day. And so you just said what I was actually going to say. I think at the end of the day, we all want to feel like we've contributed yeah. something good and positive. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily a public service, but we just want to be able to say at the end of the day, I feel good about the job that I've done. Making wine is a public service. <laughs> it really is. It is. I agree. Yeah. And also going back to that drinking thing, I've been talking about this with friends I think there's a part of us that feels a little guilty when we go home and we're like, oh, I just really need a glass of wine. There's nothing wrong with that. No, no there's nothing wrong with the um, the habits and the routines that give us pleasure. Yeah. I feel the same way with um, making a cup of coffee and using a really nice, you know, small batch, um, you know, quality roasted grind and then yeah. really enjoying that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing if I'll have a cocktail and enjoying that. And it tends to have a, maybe a little bit of a connection with the product and a mm-hmm. little bit of stimulus in your mind about why yep. am I enjoying it? What makes it special? Right. Especially if it's with people yeah. and it's in moderation, it lowers your blood pressure, it kind of quiets your mind mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, so we can talk about that also. So your dad starts, you know, his background, obviously, being a chemist, perfect going into winemaking. He makes this first vintage. You're born, and they're, like, do they go full force with winemaking? Yeah, in in a sense. So the story was that, um, first of all, I was named after my great-grandfather, Herb. And my great-grandfather, he passed away in that same year, but he left my father a small inheritance you know, a few thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And he was able to use that to finance um, that first vintage. And he had a, um, the winery he was working at was large. A lot of the California wineries um, are are very large. And so the smallest tank he had was like 8,000 gallons. So in order to get any sort of depth in that tank at all, he had to make at least about a thousand cases worth. Okay. But a friend of his had encouraged him to do this. And it was a guy by the name of Daryl Cordy who had a chain of stores in the Sacramento area called Cordy Brothers. And he said, if you make this port, I'll buy it. And so he made the port. He had it bottled at another friend's winery in Napa. And he told Daryl that um, he had the port ready and um, he was expecting an order. And Daryl said, great, I'll take 10 cases. So he had another 990 to sell. Wow. So it took a little bit of time for him to run through that inventory. But he made wine again in 77 and 78 and, uh, and 79. And then by 1980, he was making uh, small batches of port, and then that was the first year he made orange muscat. Okay. But he was moonlighting. Um, he was always a, a winemaker at another big winery at the okay. time until 1982 when he was able to leave the big winery and focus full-time on his own. Had he made mostly dessert wines and ports? or? He was making uh, most all dessert wines and port. Okay. And it was interesting, you know, through the 60s and the 70s, uh, 
dessert wines were a very popular category. Mm -hmm. So being a premium dessert wine maker was a brand new thing, but it was a popular category. Right. All restaurants had them on their list. Most people had them after dinner. Mm -hmm. So it was a it was a good thing to get into at the time. Do you think ports and dessert wines went south somewhere and got a bad name at some point? I don't think it's not that they got a bad name. It's just that um, people's tastes uh, changed and they've been changing. And so, you know, a lot of people still enjoy off dry wines. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the off dry red wine category is popular as is whites and um, Moscato is extremely popular. But people stopped drinking wine after dinner. And Mm. that happened when people started drinking maybe more wine before dinner. And especially, I think, when um, drunk driving laws became a bit more strict and people were more concerned about having too much. Don't have that after dinner drink. Exactly. Which is responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, So my family's winery... um, Quaddy Winery, we were able to evolve, um, and we, my father had made a Moscato, which he called Electra, in the late 80s, and as the Moscato boom happened, um, he was really well positioned to take advantage of that, so we went from making mostly um, sweet fortified dessert wines to making Moscato, which is a Mm -hmm. semi-sparkling wine that people have, honestly, in lots of different ways. Right. There's a lot of similarities between what your dad used to make and what's in your tasting room now at Quaddy North? Well, we have all the wines that my dad makes or that we make at our family winery in California. Mm-hmm. So we can bracket, we have the wines before dinner and the wines after dinner and the Moscato. And then we have all the wines we make in Oregon. Okay. So between us, over the entire family, we can cover every instance. Okay. Um, before we move on, where does the name Quaddy come from? What is yeah, that? it's my last name. And... Um, <laughs> It comes after my first yeah, name. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so all we know is that my uh, one of my ancestors, you know, my dad's side, he uh, was German and he came over from Bremen. And I did a little bit of research. Um, you know, he was there. It was like Hanover, um, Prussia. I you know. I think that whole Central Europe Europe area was very confusing mm-hmm. that time, and people migrated all over the place. Mm-hmm. And um, but Quadi is uh, somehow Germanic, even though it doesn't okay. sound like it. We're 10 minutes in and the smartassness has already started. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It could have started earlier. Okay. Well, I was trying to be polite. No, don't. Don't. Just leave politeness at the door, please. Um, what was your childhood like then? Oh, it was, you know, it was it was great. I mean, my parents are awesome. And I think what's interesting is that if you ask uh, the older brother if, if he and his sister got along, the older brother's always going to say yes. Of course. And the, it's the little sisters that are like, don't you remember yeah. that one time? And you're like, no, I totally forgot about Torture. that. Torture. <laughs> you probably tortured her. Allie, right? Allie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Allie, I feel you. I feel your pain. But, um, the, um, but my parents, um, my mom was a CPA, and she actually supported the winery, the, the family, while mm-hmm. the winery got going. Yeah, so, Go mom. Um, yeah, and then my father, um, you know, full-time in the winery. And early on, he, you know, went from being the winemaker to being more and more involved in sales. So um, when I was really young, and, you know, let's say before five or six, it was a lot of time spent at the winery as my parents would be, you know, crushing or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, bottling or whatever. Um, once the winery got a little bit bigger and my father started doing more in sales, you know, uh, I was less involved like on the production side of things, but mm-hmm. I used to work at the winery, um, every summer and they would give me part-time jobs, uh, that I couldn't screw up too bad. And so I think I got 
every job in the winery, especially on the production side. Right. Yeah. Was wine part of family life too? Absolutely, yeah. Like no, we would have wine every mm-hmm. every night with dinner. And you're obviously not 21 at this at this point in the game. But Absolutely it was something right. Yeah. But it was something that, and I I agree with you on yeah. this. I feel like we shouldn't glorify alcohol and make it this big deal. And I um, even studies have shown that in other countries where children have grown up with this in their in their life, it doesn't become an issue at 21. Yeah, when when I was young, we, we used to have wine water. You know, we just cut wine with water. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think. Orange muscat is very easy to get into at a young age. A little uh, bit. Watch out. Uh, it's quite out there. tasty. It's quite tasty. But when I, even as a teenager, um, my father would, we would have dinner. It was always a, a big occasion mm-hmm. dinner. Even if it was a family, you know, average dinner night, my, we would, he'd come in, he'd prepare something. We always had a garden and he would pick a wine from the cellar to mm-hmm. have with dinner. And he would trade a lot with other wineries or he would buy things that he thought were interesting and then we try the wine and talk about it. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely amazing. And I think, too, it strengthens the family bond as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't always see um, at the time what types of influences are important mm-hmm. until later. But then later, you might have something that you think is instinctual. But reality, it, it came from something that you were exposed to when you were younger. Yeah, was that a big deal for you looking back? Did that have an impact on you, those family meals and the wine and the garden and dad cooking? It Absolutely, I think um, that plus some of my early jobs at the winery mm-hmm. uh, helped me gain kind of a broad-based understanding of the business. Okay. On, on the one hand, you know, drinking wine at dinner and talking about the wines, I mean, that's a lot about sort of the um, intellectual side of things and the historical side of things and um, getting an idea of wine as in a very big picture. But working down at the family winery, that, you know, for that you learn that, hey, man, this, this is about efficiency. This is about economics. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to work with people. You need to motivate people. Um, and so uh, how you manage and treat people. All those kinds of things you learn by being in the middle of it and seeing that. So from both ends, uh, I got an, a very early education. And did he ask your opinion on these wines at an early age? Yeah, he would. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. impressive. I feel like a lot of adults maybe wouldn't go there because what does this kid know yeah. about fill in the blank? So I think also that probably had maybe an impact just wanting to hear from you about yeah. these wines when, when you're young all you know all red wines for the most part seem dry you know mm-hmm. oh, it's all dry and tannic and and so that's um but that's that's true you know when you're when you're young your palate is more sensitive in some cases and so that's the case mm-hmm. but if you know that then maybe you can start trying other wines mm-hmm. for example that are easier to approach but are still interesting okay yeah so you um obviously graduate from high school and you're moving on with your life. What's next after high school? I went to UC Santa Cruz. And when I when I grew up, I mean, the, the only industry I really knew as far as the wine industry was my family's winery. Uh-huh. And I wanted to leave Madeira and I wanted to do something else. And I thought um, I was interested in history. I was a good writer and I might be interested in uh, politics. And so I thought I might go into maybe uh, international diplomacy or Hmm. something like that. So I studied politics at UC Santa Cruz, and I I think I only visited like two or 
three UC campuses, and UC Santa Cruz was by far the coolest. It's really and beautiful. So I was like, I'm going here, and then I'll figure out what, what I need to study. Exactly. What well, they got in the catalog. All right. I'll figure it out later. Politics seems good. Let's study that. <laughs> and so I was at UC Santa Cruz, and um, my wife uh, attended UC Santa Cruz, too. I met her. Uh, she is my was one of my good friend's cousins. And then I met her, um, and she ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, too. And so I got into, I, I sort of got a little bit disenchanted in politics and in pre-law. And I said, you know, I think I want to go into the wine industry. Mm -hmm. And so I told my dad, um, hey, uh, dad, I think I want to go into the wine industry. And in my mind, I thought he'd say, Herb, I've always been waiting for you to tell me that. And I will teach you everything you need to know. And instead he said, oh, Really? Okay. He said, <laughs> oh, no. uh, fine, if you want to go into the wine industry, uh, go work for somebody else. Ooh, snap. And so uh, he said, and then later on, he had, had met um, the general manager at Bonnie Dune Vineyard, mm -hmm. which is in Santa Cruz. And he said, you know, my son, he thinks he wants to get in the wine industry. Um, do you got any jobs for him? And she said, well, uh, sure. And so she calls me up and says, do you want to work in sales or production? And I said, production. And he goes, okay. She said, all right, um, I'll set you up with an interview with the winemaker at our Santa Cruz facility. Okay. His name was Eric Sussman. And so I rode my bike down there. It was not very far from where I was living, which was cool. It was on That's the west side. Very Santa Cruz of you. Very Santa way. Cruz of me. And I had an interview. And as I recall, it went something like this. He said, have you ever worked in the winery? And I said, yeah, I've worked. I had a lot of different jobs, and I can set up a pump, and I can wash a tank, and so forth. And he says, okay, great. He said, do you live locally? And I said, yeah, I live, uh, I rode my bike here. And he goes, great. Well, you work for eight fifty an hour. And I said, absolutely, because my job before then was as a prep cook, and I only made $7, I think. You just got a raise. Uh, I got a raise. And so I went home, and my wife and I, who was my girlfriend then, we were living together, we were worried about how we were going to pay our rent and so forth sure. at $7 an hour. And I said, don't worry, we got it covered because I got a job at 8.50. Yeah, look at me, honey. And so we were we were happy, we celebrated. And the <laughs> winemaker told me later, he said, I got off uh, after your interview and I called up the owner and I said, you wouldn't believe it, I got a guy, he's already worked in the winery, he lives locally and he'll work for only 8.50 an hour. What an idiot, no, Yeah. just kidding. Yep, so, <laughs> so they, they, they hired me on and um, I uh, started uh, taking uh, classes at UC Santa Cruz in biology and chemistry. Mm -hmm. And I worked that racket for about six years until my counselor called me in and said, what are you doing? You've been here for six years. You have every class you need to graduate except for one with a politics major. And you're taking biology and chemistry. And I said, well, I want to be a winemaker. So I was thought I might get a chemistry degree and then transfer. He said, you just need to graduate. <laughs> you just need to get out of <laughs> here. You just need to graduate. <laughs> so I took my last class, uh, senior thesis, and I graduated with a degree in politics. And then I started taking more biology and chemistry. And then I went back to school at Fresno um, and completed the program in mm -hmm. viticulture and algae. Okay. And so from this winery you were working at, what happened next? Like, what was the next winery? Yeah, so I was, that was Bonnie Dune Vineyard. Uh -huh. It was a really cool winery. I mean, they were making everything. Mm -hmm. So I learned all this stuff. I learned about grown varieties and table wines and all this experimental and a grand theory of winemaking. Mm -hmm. My father had given me a lot of books to read. We traveled in France. We tried different wines there. And then um, while I was a student at uh, Fresno State, I worked at my family's winery as assistant winemaker. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And so then I learned about how um, 
our wines are made there. And I learned a lot about winery management and production and um, about wine balance. So at this point, dad was okay you working with him? Oh, he was still a little skeptical. But I mean, I had actually worked for another winery for a couple of years and was in school. Right. So he's like, yeah, I guess this is legit. You're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So after that, you're assistant winemaker at the family winery. Do you move on from there? Well, so after that, I sort of looked at it in a couple of ways. And I thought we had a winemaker there. He was really well established. And my ability to advance there was going to be somewhat limited. Plus, I was also really interested in table wines. So I went back to Bonnie Jean Vineyard for a harvest and was mm-hmm. an associate winemaker there in charge of their big wines mm-hmm. uh, at a big facility. But we figured out that we would have a hard time sort of establishing ourselves in California. It was expensive and... Um, With table wines? In general, as a family. Oh, okay. You okay. know, like how, how were me and I uh, had a... Uh, a young daughter at that time, she mm-hmm. was three. How are we going to establish ourselves in California in the wine industry, in um, the wine country, for example? It's a little saturated. Yeah, it's saturated. It's competitive, it's saturated. And so I um, was looking at places to work other than Bonnie Dune, and I was looking in Sonoma and Paso Robles, and a friend of mine said, um, hey, there's somebody looking for a ranch manager at a new project in Southern Oregon. And so I had also answered an ad for a winemaker at Cooper Mountain. Okay. So I thought I'll go on this little trip. We'll interview here, and then we'll interview in Cooper Mountain. So I did that, and I got to Southern Oregon, and um, the Steels, uh, Bill and Barbara, were starting a new project, which is now Calhorn. Right. And they took me out there, and we had an interview, and they explained their vision, and I was so impressed that I canceled my interview at Cooper Mountain. That's always a good feeling. Yeah. It's like, this is where I'm going. This and, is this is it. And I thought Southern Oregon seemed to have so much potential mm-hmm. here. And so- What year was this? This was 2003. Okay. And to the extent that good wines were made or not wa- or not made, they didn't seem to have to do with the ground, let's say, with the vineyards or the grape quality. It, it I thought that there were sometimes some mistakes in winemaking. Mm-hmm. But then in some cases, some of the wines were very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so- and very interesting and unique. And they reminded me sometimes of the wines from California and sometimes of the wines from France and sometimes of the wines from Eastern Washington, but at the same time, they were all their own. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought this could be really cool. I could maybe be involved in a part of the industry that was growing and developing at an uh, interesting time. Yeah. And so that's why I took the leap. At some point, too, you left Cowhorn and then went to Troon. Yep. Okay. And you were at Troon for a long time. Yeah, I was at Troon from 2004 uh, to the end of 13. Okay. Yeah. And I specifically remember your time at Troon because of the port that you made. Mm, yeah. The, right. insomnia. the insomnia port. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also uh, Druid's Fluid. Right. I've had a lot of conversations about Druid's Fluid that it's kind of like that gateway <laughs> yeah, red wine. Right. Yeah. It kind of opens people up to go, oh, I do like red wine. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn from Troon that you just, I mean, was it your time at Troon that you said, I want to do this by myself on my own with my own winery? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I had, I had started coming to the conclusion of, even when I um, first started at Troon was mm-hmm. that like if I was going to take a chance I wanted to take that chance in myself um, because sometimes you could do a really good job and then um, you could lose your position and it could be no fault of your own mm-hmm. you know um, so I, I was even starting to think about it then so we in 2006 um, with my parents we started in my and my wife um, 
a new project called Quadi North, and mm-hmm. we bought some land, and my in-laws um, were involved as well, or still are involved. And so um, we had started kind of launching that little project, Quadi North, relatively early on in 2006. But I think at Troon, I made a whole lot of connections with um, local wine growers, and I made all these observations about the climate here and what was different right? and uh, adapted the winemaking style that I had learned in California to what the real conditions were here in Southern Oregon mm. and tried to come up with something that was maybe a, a new style um, that would work best with our climate and our fruit. Okay. So you really took on this project and wanted it to highlight and capitalize on what Southern Oregon does best. Yeah, I mean, even with the wines I made at Troon, you know, mm-hmm. I was basically evolving. I started my year one and I said, thought, okay, if you're going to make a red wine, you need to really extract it, right? And and so we, I crushed everything up and I made these huge extracted red wines, which I tried one a couple months ago, uh, 2004, tasting great now. Wow. 14 years later. Wow. But early on, they were a little tough to market, okay? Yeah. And what I realized was that our climate was already, like, the skins were already thick, mm-hmm. you know? And we don't need to extract a lot more from these grapes. They already have a lot to give. I needed to be gentle. Mm-hmm. So in 2005 and six, I started changing my technique and being a lot more gentle. And I think the wines became more approachable okay. after then. Yeah. And yeah. the specifically about Quadi North, I think one thing... I noticed for sure are the labels. It's a piece of art on this bottle. Very colorful, incredibly different and unique than really maybe any other label that's out there. Where did that come from? Yeah, my wife, Melanie, um, she's a, um, she has a degree in fine arts, a mm-hmm. master's degree. And she, um, you know, is extremely talented and uh, she has a great, I think, eye for, um, for image and look and feel and how that connects with people. And so I had an idea about, you know, how I wanted the labels to look like. I tried to communicate that with her and she made some, um, some, some drawings and some, and none of them really looked that great. And <laughs> it was because I was trying to say, oh, I should look, but I didn't really have that same right. idea. And then she um, first came up with a font choice, the Quiet North font choice. And it was a long sort of rectangular font choice, and it left a big label plate. And then she was interested in um, traditional American tattoo. Mm. And so she um, did this one drawing of a, a sparrow um, that she thought might be nice for the Steelhead Run Viognier, which was our first label we were going to um, release. And... I loved it. I thought it was outstanding and it was mm-hmm. great. And it, and it seemed at the same time uh, very pretty, very cool. And mm-hmm. I thought it made a bit of a statement. Like the biggest thing for me was I didn't have a chateau on a hill. I mean, I, I had nothing that I could even put on a label and say. And also, I just didn't like that. You know, I thought that that was, seemed sort of pompous and so, and every label had something to do with a bridge or an oak or a gate or like, you know, <laughs> Oak Ridge gate, you know, or something like that, right? And it, just in recombining here's those names. Here's my mansion, here's my mountain, yeah. here's my vineyard. And here's yeah. the gate over the creek, <laughs> up the cliff. Right. So that's why we call it Gate Cliff, you know, or whatever, right? And right. so, uh, in any case, uh, we wanted to just like, you know, break past all that and say, 
Instead, here's an image that might give you an idea mm -hmm. of this wine and the people behind it. Mm -hmm. It's very it. tattoo-esque. It is. They are all classic American tattoos. Yeah. I wonder if anyone's looked at these labels and said, ah, that's my tattoo. That's my next tattoo. You know, uh, actually, it's been pretty cool, um, especially in the last couple of years. Uh, we've had a couple of people who, for one way or the other, became very attached to the rosé. And they either got the rose uh, tattooed, mm -hmm. or in one case, um, a woman whose mother loved the um, rosé a lot, and the mother had passed away. She and her siblings got the rosé tattoo. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and speaking so I thought that was pretty cool. And speaking of rosé, um, your rosé just won Best of Show. It did. The GSM yeah. rosé. GSM rosé. Um, and you also, there were two other wines, I think, that you were in making, helping yeah. to make, that also won Best of yeah, Show. Yeah, the all you, you cleaned up a little bit at Oregon the, Wine Experience. Uh, old 99 Tempranillo. You and your team. Yeah, me and my team, exactly. And that is, that's exactly the case. And I'm glad that um, you brought that up because it is the team. And it's not only uh, Brian and Nicole mm -hmm. who uh, are outstanding. And matter of fact, I mean, they are really the ones making the wines, have been for a few years now. But also Sarah, Kevin, Chateau. Um, everybody in the cellar and the viticultural team. Mm -hmm. You know, we have our own vineyard management company that takes care of most of these vineyards. And for example, the old 99 Tempranillo was from Steelhead Run Vineyard, which is a vineyard that we farm. And um, the GSM Rosé, there's many different vineyards involved in that. And the um, Viognier is by Andy Pearl's Vineyard, which is kind of cool. And we don't farm that one, but it's just good for him, you know, make sure that he gets a knowledge for the nice grapes that he grows there. Mm -hmm. Um, for that VM game. What was that like, though, hearing, you know, hearing those awards coming out, the, you know, the last three that we're announcing f at Oregon Wine Experience? Were you just blown away? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I did not expect it. Uh, I had thought we had done well mm -hmm. um, because of, uh, they had requested a certain amount of wine for us, and it seemed like a lot. But um, it's pretty, having done this for a while, to get best of show, at some point, it you know you're you're doing a very good job, but to be honest, there's maybe six, maybe eight extremely good wines there, and the judges just have to find some level of agreement, right? right? right. So I think if you get a gold, if you win a double gold, I mean that hats off to you, and mm -hmm. you've that's an amazing, amazing wine. If you get best of show, all you've managed to do is just been able to have a wine that people could agree on. In mm -hmm. that case, it doesn't mean that. Um, I don't know how much it means that your wine was that much better than the other double golds in that day. So that, I think, is an important thing to remember. It's but, a good perspective. Yeah, it's yeah. a very good perspective. But winning all three is, I think, just um, maybe some recognition of accumulated um, mm -hmm. success where this year it was able to just sort of line up. Um, in prior years, we had sort of been at the doorstep, mm -hmm. um, had won it a couple of times, but this year... Um, we were able to have really good entries across the board. Yeah. So. I think, too, if you look at the judges this year and last year, um, and I've said this a bazillion times, there's four masters of wine yeah. on this panel. So when you're taking home a silver, a gold, a double gold, you can be super proud of that medal just based on the caliber of judges. Absolutely. And, and you know, these are, um, I think, this type of competition, when you have this many really good mm -hmm. um, judges, and also it's it's still relatively regionalized. It's organ, right? Mm -hmm. So we are tasting everything in context. Mm -hmm. When you do a really large international competition, it's very tough because 
you're not judged against wines from your same region. And so right. it gets kind of skewed. So if you do well in, in this Oregon wine competition, I think you should absolutely be extremely proud and have a lot For of sure. confidence in the quality of that wine. I agree. Um, I read somewhere someone called you the godfather of grapes. Um, that is a moniker that has been attached recently. Why, why do you think that has been attached to you? Well, the the guy who came up with that for the first time is a friend of mine. His name is Corey Schuster, mm-hmm. and he has a Jackalope winery. And so he was interviewed by Michael Alberti, who is writing a piece for Sprudge and is also a columnist at Oregonian. And so what Corey was laughing about sort of jokingly is that up there, if you're a small winemaker and you want to get something special, something from Southern Oregon, then basically everybody will tell you, talk to Herb. <laughs> and it's not like I grow all these grapes, yeah. but it's more like I know where to get them. You make the connection. And I, it's like, so you got to come to me and then I'll set you up. You're like, maybe. You I know, know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy. Look, I know a guy. I know a guy. And it's got to be picked by my crew. And it's got to be put in my truck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and someday uh, I'm going to need a favor. Right. <laughs> Uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I apologize. We've talked about wine a lot, but you don't seem to ever grow tired of talking about it. Uh, a lot of people say that I don't grow tired of talking in general. (laughs) So, but, um, no, I mean, wine is still my, my passion. It's, Mm -hmm. it's my, it's the greatest challenge that I know of besides trying to be a good person and a Mm -hmm. good father. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think um, winemaking and the wine industry holds a lot of um, interesting, you know, intellectual questions, a lot of challenges. It's really fascinating. Um, it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, spent my whole life um, trying to learn maybe just a few things, you know, that are absolutely true. Um, a lot of things are strong assumptions. Um, what is your... What are the things that make you tick when it comes to the wine industry that just really, really get under your skin? Oh, that get under my skin? Yeah. I don't think we Besides need... the dirt from the vineyard. Yeah, right. I've <laughs> plenty of that. Uh, I don't think that we need to have the... Um, uh, I, I, we need to be very careful about elitism. There's no need to um, try to give off any perceptions of elitism. The... Um, any um, advantages that somebody that you think that might gain for you, I think, are quickly outweighed mm-hmm. by um, how that might make other people feel, especially people who are new to wine. Or mm-hmm. and, absolutely, and so um, I, that really bothers me a lot. You know, whether it's perceived or otherwise, um, I think the people who have um, the most always have the least reason to brag. If you've noticed. Right. Mm-hmm. I've met some people in the wine industry who are titans, legends, you know, and uh, most of them were the most approachable, e- easygoing, interesting people to talk with. Very true. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that always, always bothers me. I think um, that we have to be on guard against um, manipulation. I mean, uh, you know, it's possible for large entities to um, gain uh, control in this region and um, and then to be able to exert forces that, you know, we, we can't control and can mm-hmm. hurt a lot of us. And so 
you know, we started out being a, a region mostly of small growers and small wineries, and now there are a lot more large wineries and large growers involved. And so in California, you know, if um, certain wineries change policies or they change their whims and decide to uh, buy some, one thing over another or um, – then they can they can really affect the industry. Yeah. And here it's not quite been the case until recently. And we want to stick to our roots a little bit. That's right. Yeah. Because you're right. We started out very small with very mm-hmm. few wineries, and it's sort of blown up in the last yeah. decade. So that's a good point. And I think that's what makes Southern Oregon so special. Absolutely. Yeah. And different. And it is, I think, a defining characteristic of interesting wine regions to visit. I mm-hmm. mean, um, you know, in, in Oregon... I think we're very well known for um, a tradition of working with each other, and the wine industry in general has that. Absolutely. Uh, but it's mostly found among small growers and wineries. Mm-hmm. I Our press has been very temperamental this season. Brian and I were wrenching on it yesterday. Nicole was wrenching on it on Sunday. Um, I was off on Sunday, and I find, found out what was happening, and I started making calls, and within – you know, uh, half an hour, I had an offer of a, a press we could borrow. Um, somebody would juice grapes for us. Somebody would put our grapes up in cold storage. That's I mean, so nice. it's, it's amazing, you know, and, and these, and I would do the same for them too. Absolutely. Um, and that, and as long as we can keep doing that, we'll have a thriving industry and people from outside the industry will think positively about the wine industry. Right. Because yeah. it's, yeah, it's all about teamwork. And, exactly. and if someone's visiting you because you won an award somewhere, they're going to go visit dancing or red lily or whoever at the same time absolutely and and we become way more interesting um if we can put out a lot of really nice wines mm-hmm. and that a, uh, our region are, is attached to mm-hmm. and start putting that in different places around the country or around the world and that's really what brings people to a region um napa valley is sort of a one-off i mean there's not going to be another premium wine industry, that uh, wine region, that close to a big metropolitan area. Our models should really be something more like Walla Walla, which basically put out really nice wines year after year after year. And then people from Seattle, New York, LA, just started adding that as a place to visit and Mm -hmm. visiting it because of the wine industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Put Southern Oregon on your list, people. Right. Not be disappointed. Besides old grape juice, what are your other passions in life? Um, I, you know, I'm really attached, you know, to my family, obviously mm-hmm. we, uh, me and my wife, I have, uh, three girls and, um, we, uh, like to try to do trips. You know, I, my wife, uh, bought a old Kencraft camper a couple years ago and we spent all summer restoring it. Nice. And we, uh, like to take that to the coast. Um, we also have a 63 Spider Corvair convertible. Ooh. And I spent this summer uh, swapping out the motor and the transmission. Okay. And I have another dozen little projects to do on that one. Fun. And um, so, of course, I like to cook. Um, I I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I love to cook. And Who so cooks my, more in your house? You uh, or your wife? During harvest, it's my wife. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're a little busy. The rest of the year, I, I like to try to make dinner at least. <clears throat> What's your signature thing? Like, what do you make just that's really good? Um, I guess, there, you know, I have a few things. You have to ask each of my girls. They okay. all have their own favorite things, right? Okay, well, let's. what are the favorites of the three girls? Oh, my. Yeah, uh, so Treen, uh, one time, I don't know how we, I just looked at what we had in the house, okay? And um, 
I made this a I took a tortilla and I put melted dark chocolate and uh, peanut butter and I told her oh. and I made it quesadilla style. Yes. And I told her that this is what the ancient kings of Mexico like to eat. <laughs> That sounds awesome, actually. Yeah. So, so we call it the King of Mexico. I love it. Yes. Okay. That's right. Is it two tortillas or folded? Well, I folded them. Okay. Yeah, I folded them. Um, Nutella yeah. also works. Uh, oh, sure. In a situation Absolutely. like that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, as a comfort thing, uh, Margot, I made, I made her this thing called, uh, again, out of necessity, breakfast nachos. So <laughs> she loves nachos. She loves chorizo. And I just um, made... Uh, Make her a thing with just like, you know, sliced corn tortillas, sautéed in oil with chorizo and um, uh, melted cheese. And Yum. I don't know if she'll say that's my absolute favorite thing, but that's like it's like her. It's like the it's thing hers. that I make yeah. for her. Right. You know, is Margot the oldest? Yeah, she's the second oldest. Oh, yeah. Okay. So so Trine is um, my uh, sort of adopted daughter. She um, is was my uh, Margot's really good friend growing up. And um, she has spent a ton of time in my household. And, and so, you know, we, I call her my older daughter. And Aww. she's a student at Portland State. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then uh, for Serafina, you know, it's funny. A lot of these things are like little breakfast type stuff. But, you know, I'll make her buttermilk pancakes and different shapes, you know, caterpillars or, you know, whatever. Add chocolate chips. And, yeah, you know, these are not – this is not – high cuisine but i think all of them would remember I would, each of these things well, so. i would think they would disagree i mean my mom made something we called it delicious chicken yeah, yeah. it was like chicken with cream of mushroom soup and cheddar cheese yeah i crave that sometimes that sounds really good i just want it melanie makes uh tuna casserole which everybody just dies for yeah, yeah. i just think there's these things that it doesn't matter how fancy it is but you love it and it's fancy to you absolutely so. Yeah. and so margo she was at a tasting i think with you yep is she, is she? Is this her path? You think? <laughs> I think uh, for her, she would say absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> she just, it's like you know, it's one of those things. It's like you know, as, as much as she tries to get out, she gets dragged back in. You right. know, right? Um, but honestly, I could use her help sometimes. I mean, that was a night where like I needed her help, and okay. so I drafted her in, and that's going to be the way it is. You know, for all of them. I mean, well, she's very yeah, pleasant. So. Uh, we're going to wrap up a little bit and get okay. to my final three, but I did read somewhere that maybe the next adventure and project for you could be sparkling wine, which yeah. I'm super excited about. So, um, yeah, several years ago, I just like decided, I, you know, I want to do this. We're going to make it. And like a lot of these things, it starts with the, me making this decision and then other people figuring it out. Okay. <laughs> oh, and. No. And so that was really the case with the cans, and okay. it was the case with a lot of things, um, and it's called that management style. But any case, um, so uh, Nicole primarily um, has really been instrumental in the sparkling program. She's okay. sort of owning that program and Yay, keeping it all together. And so um, we released our first sparkling, which was a... Um, Rosé of Cabernet Franc mm -hmm. a couple years ago, but the production has just been really small. And with this vintage, we'll have um, the release coming up. We're going to have at least you know close to 100 cases. We're starting to make this a little bit more viable. And then on the other side, we have the Pet Nat, which is a uh, Petillant Natural, which is another style of sparkling. Okay. And same thing, we'll be we're bumping up that volume a little bit. So they started out. Again, kind of like the cans is what we call a small commercial trial, like just enough to make it 
a commercial size, mm-hmm. but small enough that we don't, you know, get ourselves in too much trouble. Exactly. And well, along the way, we've learned a lot, and I think we've got it figured out now. I am excited about bubbles. I think we all need a little bit more Absolutely. bubbles in our life. Yeah, and it's just such a diverse um, – it's, it's a whole another part of winemaking, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of diversity in it. There's a lot of different ways mm-hmm. you can make, you know, sparkling wines that are really mm. fun. I love it. It's my go-to. All right, final three. Best advice you've ever been given? Oh, um, that's a good question. Yeah, best advice I've ever been given. I think I can't think of like a um, a one sort of thing that that jumps out at me. But I always remember um, like when I was growing up, I was really motivated by this um, quote from uh, Theodore Roosevelt, where he said, "You know, far and away, the best pleasure that life affords." Is hard work at work worth doing? Oh, per- awesome. Yes. You know? It's a great I, quote. I know. I found that. I posted it on my wall um, when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And even today, I still feel like that. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's nothing better than a day where you worked really hard and you came home and felt good about what you do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, it goes back to that. Yeah. You come home and you want to feel like you've contributed something. Yeah. Right. For sure. I had a news director who told me, um, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. I mean, that's a, a definitely one, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, look busy. Yeah, right? I tell yeah. my reporters that. They don't like it. Yeah. Um, okay, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would bring you back? What would make you, what would you miss the most? Oh, I mean, this is a really special place. Mm-hmm. And I think the, um, you know, we've met a lot of great people while we've been here. Um, and I love our ranch. Um and so I, I think I'd be, you know, I would definitely miss the way of life here, mm-hmm. um, which I think right now is still pretty um, simple and pretty friendly, as well as the um, the scenery and the, the yeah. natural beauty. Yeah, it's yeah. stunning. No yeah. place like it, in my opinion. And then if you were ever given a final meal and a final drink, what would that look like your last meal your last drink mm, my last on the drink planet mm. well i think it's a last drink i mean my favorite wines are the old uh Morvetres from southern france mm-hmm. especially uh chateau prado which is this or uh domaine gossin you know those two ones so i would i would love a really old really nice Morvetre. okay yeah okay and as a meal goes, uh, that's a tough one. It would have to be something which would go really well with that with wine. With that old yeah, wine. Yeah, so, you know, something, um, you know, like, oh, you know, Osobuco, for example, oh, or yeah. something like that that mm-hmm. would go really well with it. But that's a tough one. I, you know, one of my favorite meals is the bouillabaisse that uh, my wife makes every New Year's. Mm. That's more of a rosé dish right so that's kind of tricky you know seafood yeah 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 Uh, well you can't well if liz juan and sarah gar specifically have done courses like they've just said i would start with this with this and i would go here and go here so you know what absolutely i i I shouldn't have been quite so (laughs) self-limiting there right Right? this is your final meal (laughs) your final this is it yeah and um well there's nothing you know better than a really really good you know, um, prime rib too. Uh, Absolutely. You know, especially so. I mean, that's a good one too. And so, yeah, I would I would basically start out with um, 
a French cheese plate, like mm. like in France, where they come and they like start pointing out the different names, and one looks like a pyramid, and one's like cylindrical, and one looks like a log, and everything's got a little mm-hmm. name. And they know the guy mm-hmm. who made each uh-huh. one. And that one looks like awesome. it's been sitting out somewhere for a hundred years. Yeah, and it really stinks. Yeah, and it's like the best. It's the most delicious. Yeah, and then um, yeah, I would love that bouillabaisse course uh, in there okay. with a delicious, you know, dry southern French rosé, and then. You know, we could get into the uh, the main, you know, red protein course. Now we're talking. But um, my mother-in-law's enchiladas would need to fit in there as okay. well um, with, like, just a nice light lager, organ lager, something like that. Okay. Now you're talking. And then um, the uh, for dessert, <laughs> gosh, you know, something like uh, chocolate truffles or something like that and mm. Elysium. And then after dessert... We'd have uh, vintage port okay. with blue cheese again. Perfect. Yeah. I feel so much better about this question <laughs> and your answer now. Herb Quaddy, thank you so much for being here. This was yeah. a lot of fun. I learned a lot about you. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play. You can also check out the video portion of this podcast. All you have to do is go to ktbl.com, click on features, and then off script. Once again, Herb Quaddy from Quaddy North. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.